0: Love, talk, radio. Welcome, one and all. This is Robert Rogers. I'm the founder of Parkinson's Recovery. We've been in existence since 2004, dedicated to provide information, support, and resources to individuals who currently experience the symptoms of Parkinson's disease and their family members I am thrilled and excited to report that my guest today is a person I consider to be the leading researcher on figuring out everything there is to know about Parkinson's and what we can do to reverse those symptoms Dr. Lori Mishley was on the radio show in 2010. It is, by all accounts, one of the most popular shows, listened to week after week, even today, by many, many, many individuals, thanks to the over 2,100 listens to the radio shows over the period that we've actually been airing them. Dr. Mishley, thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to be our uh, guest on the radio show today.
1: It is a pleasure to be here. That's quite the introduction. Thank you. Tell us all about yourself. Uh, okay. So uh, this started for me in a chemistry class at a community college when I learned about Linus Pauling. He was um, I learned at the time he was the only person in history to win two unshared Nobel Prizes And um, the name of the article I was reading in Scientific American was A Man Ten Years Ahead of His Time, and that piqued my interest. And so I started studying him and what he was all about, and the way that this Scientific American article went was, here's this guy who has had four very unconventional ideas throughout history, and three of them, um, in spite of everyone laughing, turned out to be correct. The world was wrong and he was right. Right. And the article said, you know, it's it's unfortunate that his fourth idea that nutrients are playing a huge role in psychiatry and neurodegenerative diseases, um, too bad he's wrong about that whole vitamin, mineral, nutrition thing. Ha, ha, ha. And so that just struck me as, as low-hanging fruit. Here was this man I thought was brilliant, I respected, who was pointing us in the right direction and everything he was saying really was hard to argue with, that um, we didn't have the science to support it all, but what he was saying made sense. So that that was when I switched my career from pre-med to nutrition. Nutrition science was my undergraduate work at Penn State. And then when it came time to go to medical school, I really was motivated to learn more about nutritional medicine, and Bastyr University had what I considered to be the best nutritional medicine program in the country. So I did my medical school work here, and I graduated as a naturopathic physician in 2001 and from since then I've had a nutritional neurology based private practice in Seattle's university district and then in 2010 I got an award from the NIH to leave practice and go into research uh what the government was saying was that um we had thousands and thousands of years of people using these herbal therapies acupuncture nutrition But every time conventional medicine attempted to study it, um, we weren't seeing, there was incongruence between the results we get in the lab and what historical use suggests. And so my job, really my assignment through National Institutes of Health, was to come up with a better way to study complementary and alternative medicine. You know, the point of an RCT is to, you know, find out, is this one little factor going to make the difference between progression and not? And that is just not serving Parkinson's disease well. So my job was to come up with a better way to do research. And so they um, gave me this award. And during my five years of this award, I, I got a master's in public health in epidemiology at University of Washington. And in February, I'll be defending my Ph.D. in nutritional sciences from University of Washington.
0: Oh, how exciting. Congratulations to you. Thanks. Can you clarify the difference between
1: food, diet, and nutrition? Yeah, that's one of my favorite topics to tackle because people really do jumble them all up in their heads and assume that they're one and the same. Nutrition really is the study of the human dependence on our environment. I mean, um, you know, oxygen. Every breath you take is, is our bodies obtaining nutrients from our environment. So there I I often joke that we are parasites of the planet. Without sourcing certain ingredients from our environment, we die. I mean, every second of every day and certainly every 24 hours, we need to obtain from our environment water, air, calories, protein, vitamin C, and the list goes on and on. And so the study of nutrition is the study of trying to figure out what is it that humans need to, to get from their environment in order to optimally survive and thrive. Diet is what you choose to put in your mouth. You know, what do you choose as your meals and, and your source of of food? Um, food gets to be very, very confusing. Um, you know, at its, at its lowest level, it's something that makes you stop feeling f- hungry. You know, as long as it makes you full, it can be considered food. There are a lot of things that we put in our mouth. You know, you can drink a Guinness and feel full. You know, I think there's a lot of debate. It, it does that is that food? Is that nutrition? And so it gets fuzzy from there. But um, I, I want to stress that there really is a huge difference between diet and nutrition. Nutrition includes sunlight. Nutrition includes the microbiome, the organisms in your gut. And a lot of the things that, that Parkinson's patients need, the nutrients, the nutritional deficiencies that are specific to Parkinson's disease may or may not come from food. So that that's really the biggest distinction to make there. What
0: do we know about nutrition in Parkinson's disease?
1: A lot. We know a lot more than I think we use. Um, there's data right now that says we we have found groups of people who go on to develop Parkinson's who 18.8 years before their disease, not only were they constipated, but they were statistically drinking less water than their age- and gender-matched partners who did not go on to develop Parkinson's disease. And, you know, what's interesting is they weren't thirsty either. They report less thirst. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to do this research because some of it goes back 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, and it's hard to ask people about whether or not you were thirsty 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and so the, the studies that have really shown the biggest light on Parkinson's disease have been what we call the prospective observational studies, huge, huge expensive studies where we follow tens of thousands of people. You know, we'll send them a survey every few months for 10, 20 years, like the Nurses' Health Study or um, Framington Heart Study, Honolulu Heart Study. and And we start following people when they're 20 and we follow them all the way through adulthood and then we can go back and ask, are there any decisions people were making, any foods people were eating? In their 20s and 30s, that influenced whether or not they went on to get Parkinson's disease. And a few studies have looked have have looked at Parkinson's from uh, from that angle. And across the board, dairy is implicated. Um, I believe there are at the current moment seven studies that have asked, "Are there any foods that increase your risk of developing Parkinson's disease?" And the all but one, I think, have identified dairy as a as a risk factor for getting Parkinson's disease. Um, there are a couple other studies out there. There's one based on the work from the Nurses' Health Study that says a, uh, a, they call it a Western diet or a prudent diet, but the Western diet has certainly more meats and fried foods and donuts and refined carbs and pastries. And then the prudent diet has more vegetables, grains, legumes, fish, um, mushrooms, so you know, we know a lot about that. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of studies that say the more green tea, black tea, and coffee you drink, the less likely you are to develop Parkinson's disease. Uh, there's a little bit of research that says blueberries, dark berries, anthocyanins that are in those dark, dark berries seem to be associated with lower risk of developing Parkinson's disease. So we do actually know a lot about um, how how diet affects who gets Parkinson's disease. The problem that we're running into is is who gets Parkinson's, the information that leads us to the question about who gets Parkinson's is very, very, very different than the question about if you have Parkinson's already, is there anything you can eat that will, that will shape the course of this disease. The example I give is hand washing. Uh, most people will agree that if you wash your hands, you decrease your risk of getting a flu. Once you have the flu, you cannot wash your hands and make it go away faster. So just because there are some variables associated with getting Parkinson's disease doesn't necessarily mean that if you do more of it, if you stop drinking dairy right now, get all the dairy out of your diet, starting blueberries and drinking green tea, that that will slow your Parkinson's disease. So that's, that's where the information is lacking. That's why when you're a Parkinson's patient and you ask your neurologist hey, does diet matter? Is there anything I can do? He or she is really accurate when they say there, there's no data that says changing your diet now will make a difference. There's no data that says it won't. It's just we haven't looked. So we do have a lot of information about who, how diet affects who gets Parkinson's. We have a huge lack of information about how diet shapes Parkinson's once you have it.
0: When it comes to Parkinson's disease, why do we suspect nutritional deficiencies?
1: Well, for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, first of all, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that anybody, um, all elderly people are at certain risk of nutritional deficiency for a lot of different reasons. Um, And so I think that there's just this, this inherent being human and caring for an aging population, which, where we know that if you are over the age of, you know, really 30, 40, 50, you are much more likely to have B12 deficiency. You know, and it doesn't mean that everyone over a certain age needs a B12, but it means that a good clinician needs to to be on the lookout um, as as populations age. And Parkinson's really is a disease of of the of aging. So I think there's that general thing. Um, The vast majority of people with Parkinson's are on medications, uh, levodopa in particular. And, you know, levodopa is natural. I I like levodopa. I encourage patients to use levodopa. But it depletes the body of some really essential B vitamins. And so, you know, it's not as simple as thinking you can take your pill and your problems go away. I mean, you may help one set of problems, but it's often that you're causing a different set of problems. And so if people are on levodopa, there's is, there's is no question that levodopa depletes your body's ability to use and absorb folic acid so so that those sorts of drug nutrient interactions put people with parkinson's at particular risk of nutritional deficiency and then and then there is this whole idea of you know people with parkinson's disease are are facing what I'll call a metabolic nightmare you know there is so much inflammation and degeneration and as you as as cells are dying your body's trying to clean them up and recycle misfolded proteins and the the increased free radical burden and loss of cells alone creates higher metabolic need so so as cells are dying you know we can see more free radical stress and so as, as free radicals increase due to this degenerative process, it's, it kind of makes sense that your need for antioxidants to quench them is also going to increase. And so this is where we kind of creep into this field of conditionally essential nutrients. You know, we we know that that women who are pregnant need a little bit more folic acid. We know that burn victims need more protein. I think what it's time to do now is ask, what is it that people with Parkinson's need? We know that they have nutritional requirements above and beyond somebody their age who doesn't have Parkinson's disease, but nobody has really clearly defined what those nutritional requirements are. Well, so if the science
0: is so strong and so great, why hasn't there been more research done on nutrition and Parkinson's?
1: Well, I think, you know, I think there's a there's a quote that I'll get wrong where first people say it isn't true, then they say it's true and not important, and then they say it's true and important but not new. So I think people are coming around. I mean, I think there's just this, this, um, you know, I, I am so thrilled with the amount of research that is starting to happen right now in Parkinson's disease. It is, it is really a treat to be able to go to these international conferences of Parkinson's disease and have entire lectures set aside to the intestinal microbiome and, you know, people talking about vitamin D and it really is becoming a part of the conventional approach. Um, but I think, I, I think it's. It's hard to study. I think that um, there's certainly a financial component to it. A lot of the research that is done in medicine is done by pharmaceutical companies or or um, you know, instrument companies for, for surgical procedures and things. But there's usually some financial motivation. I mean, obviously, even even pharmaceutical companies are hoping to benefit patients. You know, I'm not I'm not accusing them of being only financially driven, but if you have a patent on a novel molecule, um, you can invest. It's very expensive to do research, very expensive. So if I own a molecule and I stand to make millions of dollars on this therapy, it's it's a worthwhile investment to invest in the research that will bring it to market. You know, $10 million to bring a drug to market is, is nothing. You know, it's more like a billion for neurodiseases these days. And so so... There are international laws that say you can't patent naturally occurring molecules. I can't file a patent for water for dehydration. You know, I can't patent vitamin C for scurvy. And so, you know, if I'm sitting here making a case that, you know, the human Parkinson's brain needs more glutathione than your, you know, another person's brain might, I can't that's not patentable. And so it really is a driver. I mean, it just means that when I want to do my research, or another researcher may want to get in on this and start asking some of these questions, we need to rely on private funders, foundations, national institutes of health to to motivate the research, Um, just just because of the sheer nature of there is no, no financial motivator for industry to push it forward. And that has really slowed research down. Um, the other reason is that it's really difficult to research uh, nutrition. Nutrition research is very upstream, and you know we are in the habit of, of you, you know, just as cardi- uh, smoking causes lung cancer and cardiovascular disease, you know, we, we it, it took years and years to kind of wrap our heads around one exposure does not just cause one consequence. Um, And so where where you have something like, you know, take a glutathione deficiency or a lithium deficiency or B12 deficiency, and in such a real-life physiologic situation, you could have 20 different presentations of what that deficiency might look like. And that makes it really difficult to describe nutritional deficiencies, to screen for them in the clinic, and to predict who might benefit from repletion. I'd like to ask
0: you to discuss some about the design of studies. If the gold standard, uh, randomized, controlled trials, really isn't going to work, what
1: are our options? Right. Well, there are a lot of options. There are a lot of options, and you're right. The RCT, um, while it it may serve some studies, Sometimes, in some ways, um, it, it doesn't serve Parkinson's disease. You know, we've known about Parkinson's disease almost 200 years now. Was it was the first description, and we to this day still do not have a single therapy that reverses this disease, even stops it from progressing. Not a single one. And so, you know, I think. I think that at some point you have to say, listen, if we are investing all this money, all this time, all these brilliant people with great brains are all looking at it like this and we're not getting anywhere, we're not getting the answer we're looking for, maybe it's time to look at it a little differently. And and I think that it's just really important for for me to call out two really critical limitations in the RCT um before I go on to where are some of the alternatives. But randomized controlled trials, it, it what you try to do is get a group of people as similar as possible and split them in half or into groups. And and the goal really is to make all these groups exactly the same. And the only thing that difference differs between the group is the single thing that you're the variable that you're investigating. So carrots, you know, everyone eats all the same foods all the time. They're, the dream RCT would be, you know, a very similar group of people, and one group eats carrots, the other group doesn't eat carrots, but they're otherwise identical. That would help us answer, do carrots make a difference or not? And for something like Parkinson's disease, I mean, we don't even know you have the disease until it's already 10 years underway. So by the time you start getting symptoms, you know, th- this, this is you know, it, it has now reached a point in your substantia nigra so that you're experiencing the motor symptoms. But this has been going on for a very long time. So what we end up studying is are, are some of these dominoes that are way downstream. And so RCTs, um, you know, the other thing is that people are so different. You know, rather than, you know, when it comes time to figuring out is what we're learning in a study going to work, um, it often doesn't translate to clinic. Real people, all of the the studies we do on disease modification drugs are done in people who are not taking medications. And yet, over 80% of people with Parkinson's are on meds. So we don't know, you know, does what happens in what we see in a clinical trial setting in that type of study actually translate to the real live person who's out there trying to make good decisions. So, the trials that we've been using are really um not not working for us, so alternative study designs are available, and they're not they're not wacky unconventional ones. I mean we have never done a double blind placebo controlled trial on smoking and lung cancer. I mean what that would mean is you give you find a hundred people and you force ten of them to smoke for twenty years pack or two a day, and don't let the oh. other <laughs> <laughs> half pack smoke for those (laughs) 20 years, and we see if we can see a statistically significant difference in who develops cancer. I mean, there are a million reasons, many of them ethical, many of them practical, why we can't do randomized controlled trials to get the answers we need all the time. You know, DES and birth defects. I mean, we can't do a randomized controlled trial of that. I mean, we just look backwards at the data and we say, geez, look, based on this group, it turns out that people who have been smoking are getting way more lung cancer or way more cardiovascular disease, and we call that sufficient. So I think it's really important for researchers to to realize that this idea of a gold standard is really a bunch of hogwash. I mean, the best study design or the best outcome measure for a trial is the, is the design that best answers the question that you want answered. And so, you know, for... A lot of our purposes, you know we've done some very clever study designs in terms of of taking things away from people I've done a lot of natural history studies this this cam care study that we're doing here i I think is the one I'm most excited about and most proud of where we're taking we're looking asking anybody from anywhere in the world to log on and once Every six months, we send an email and we ask you who you are, how you are, what are you doing? What are you eating? Do you have a pet? Do you go to church? Do you exercise? If so, what kind? How much money do you make? How far away do you live from a highway? And we ask all these questions about um, people's lifestyle choices. And every six months, we ask, who are you? How are you? What are you doing? and And what we are starting to do is piece together this picture of, huge amount of diversity. I mean, there are people who are in a wheelchair within three years. There are people who are 35 years into this disease who are still rating their quality of life as excellent and hardly handicapped by this disease at all. And so we are finally starting to map out this huge amount of diversity. And rather than try and design these studies that do away with the diversity, we're taking advantage of it. So we're starting to look at who who are these people we're calling them positive deviants? Who are these people who aren't progressing? What are they doing that everybody else isn't, you know? And and the disadvantage to this type of a study is I can't tell you for the life of me why. I mean, it it the the once the analysis is run, we may learn that people who don't progress have a pet stand on their head and eat cucumbers. <laughs> and you know, and, and that may or may not be the case. I mean, we just don't know. But but all this is doing is telling us, hey, here's where to look. It's turning on the lamppost and saying, listen, we can't explain what's going on or why it's going on, but we can say that the people who aren't progressing, the people who are doing the best 10, 20, 30 years after their diagnosis, who are still rating their quality of life as good or excellent, um, who are they? Let's Let's figure out who they are and what they're doing. So, Dr. Mishley, it
0: sounds like you are really looking for participants of all ages, all conditions, all experiences from across the world. You're not really just interested in somebody who, for example, has smoked for 20 years. It sounds like you're interested in perhaps encouraging listeners to this radio show to participate in this study you are doing right now. Is that right?
1: That's absolutely right. Um, The more the way statistics works is the more people who participate, the more accurate the results become. Um, We've already started peeking at the data. Uh, it, It is pretty impressive to see. You know, I I have adjusted these data for years since diagnosis, but I haven't looked at. You know, I haven't adjusted for things like income. But we are already seeing faster progression in people who are eating fried foods and drinking soda and drinking beer um we're seeing slower progression in people who eat vegetables, nuts and drink wine. you know, and so there's more this this is just a peek at the data. um you know, we won't know the official as soon as we we have 860 people in the database right now. um when as soon as we have 1000 is when we're going to do our first round of data analysis and make all the appropriate adjustments, but um we we are really two months away from being able to sit down and say, hey, here's the first look at the positive deviance. We can't explain why they're not progressing, but we can tell you what they're doing different than the rest of the people who are progressing. And so, yeah, even though there's a positive deviance spin on this study, I do think it's really important to communicate, even if you're a negative deviant, I mean, even if you are doing terribly, even if you've never used a complementary therapy, even the more... Everybody's contribution really makes this a stronger study. The more people who participate, the the better the answer we can provide. Now,
0: for those of you who are listening, the invitation is you right now can join in and be one of the participants in this exciting study. On the radio show page there is a link that you can click on right now and you'll see exactly what you need to do in order to sign up and become a participant. Dr. Michele, as I understand it, once a person enrolls, there, of course, are a number of initial questions that have to be answered, and the time that it takes to answer those is approximately 45 minutes or so, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean it's very dependent, obviously, on the person and how well they navigate a computer. But it's a single survey. Um, we we had several people go through it, and we figured it was no. It took it never took anyone more than three hours a year. Um, and so the first survey that we send um, maybe takes people anywhere from thirty to forty-five minutes, and and that's just a bunch of questions about you and your lifestyle. And then and then, sometime in the few days following that, what we'll do is we'll send you a second uh, questionnaire that takes about a half an hour. And what that is is a very specific, detailed dietary intake. And it'll kind of say, hey, stop what you're doing and tell us everything you ate from 12 p.m., yesterday 12am yesterday to 12pm yesterday and and it's a very detailed you know you say you had a salad and it'll show you six different pictures of a salad and ask which one most looked like the size of your salad and then it will ask which one how heavily dressed was it how and then we can really get into the specifics of wow look at people who are eating less fiber people who are consuming more you know green tea or vitamin K are are showing like they're looking, like they are increasing or decreasing their rate of progression. So it'll be, it's two surveys, two emails we send every six months, and combined they take one hour for most people, but as much as an hour and a half. And you can break them up and save and come back later. Most people actually really enjoy completing it, and we often get emails saying, "I, I can answer more if you want." <laughs>
0: I'm Robert Rogers, the founder of Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is Dr. Lori Michele. So for those of you who are listening to this show, please take seriously the invitation to participate in this very groundbreaking study. Dr. Michele has already given you an excellent preview of the fact that lots of research has been done on Parkinson's, but we really don't know very much and we haven't really made progress. So, this is a way that we can really dig in and figure out what's going on. So, become a participant in helping her with digesting the results and figuring out what can really help people reverse their symptoms. So, you can do that now. Click on the link on the radio show page. And that will take you to the actual study. And if I'm saying radio show page, you're calling in by the phone, and you don't have that link, you can, uh, uh, Dr. Michele, uh they can email you and get that link. And how would they
1: do that? Sure, sure. And and I can just give the link right now too. But uh, the link is B A S T Y R Edu and my email address is neuroresearch at And can you N E U R O uh is mm-hmm. the email address slower for people. Yes neuroresearch at and it's N E U R O R E S E A R C H at Bastier B-A-S t-y-r dot e-d-u
0: i know many of you uh have a high pre- place a high premium premium on participating in research studies and many of you have done trials of one medication or another Those trials typically last for a few months. Uh, This is a study that you can engage in over a long period of time and really make a difference. So please take seriously the invitation to become a participant in this most important and exciting study. Dr. Mishley, can you talk some about how study designs really are evolving given the limitation of this gold standard supposed uh way of doing studies and, and what you are doing differently?
1: Yeah. Um so uh, as I mentioned, you know, we don't we don't learn that about Parkinson's disease, that someone doesn't learn about their diagnosis until the disease is a decade underway. Um and so we didn't know that when all of the outcome measures that, that we're currently using, the HONIN-YAR, the UPDRS, I mean, these outcome measures that we've been using in clinical trials for decades, when those outcome measures were developed, we didn't know that the motor symptoms we were seeing were as downstream as they are. And so if the goal is to conceal the motor symptoms, which is fairly effectively done with dopaminergic therapies, these outcome measures are all right you know you take your meds and the symptoms improve and um the problem with that is is they don't they don't show us if there are improvements upstream you know for instance i do research on intranasal glutathione and one of my study participants a couple of years ago turned in a journal um she ended up being in an active arm for the phase 1 trial of intranasal glutathione and her journal entry was so amazing. I mean, over the course of a week, you know, she we asked the question, "Have you noticed anything related to your Parkinson's since being in this trial?" And her journal entry over the course of a week keeps saying, "My handwriting's better. My handwriting's better. Better handwriting." And you can just see her handwriting getting better and better over the course of a week. I mean, it's visually obvious to anyone. And so she's noticing it. We're we're objectively seeing it and yet according to the outcome measures that we used in clinic nothing changed you know because because her her tremor was still there because you know she was still having medication side effects because she was still you know whatever else she was experiencing her scores didn't change and it really drove home how how you know it's one it's it's one hard enough task to find a disease modifying therapy that works we're making the task exponentially harder by not having an outcome measure that detects improvement when it exists. And so, you know, while I've been working on on these kind of black and white straightforward study designs about, you know, does intranasal glutathione slope, you know, treat Parkinson's symptoms in a randomized controlled trial, you know, I've also been uh, on the other side evolving our assessment tools so that we're better able to detect change. So, um, there is something called a PRO-PD, Patient-Reported Outcomes in Parkinson's Disease. Um, I think I may have sent you a link to that, but for those, if I didn't, and for those who are interested, the website is www.propd.org, P-R-O-P-D dot O-R-G. And what it is, is I took, you know, I think 34 common symptoms in Parkinson's disease and I'll uh, I, I will always remember one of my really good friends is a movement disorder doc, and as soon as I said I I took 34 common symptoms of Parkinson's, his mouth kind of dropped and said, "Wow, that that alone is is an evolution in research that we are acknowledging that there are 34 symptoms in Parkinson's disease." I mean, yeah. clinicians know that there are, patients know that there are, but that's not how how the measures are set up. And so it it takes 34 common symptoms in Parkinson's disease. It takes two or three minutes to complete. You just go through a list, and there are all these slider bars. And if you don't have the symptom, you press towards the left. And if the symptom is severe, you press towards the right. And so you get a cumulative score at the bottom, and you can see um there's a i've i've posted the picture at the bottom and you can see that that for most people the slope increases over time as as a good outcome measure would if it were if it accurately measured neurodegeneration in a progressive disease um and i correlate i asked the question on the survey uh, how is your quality of life overall how how do you consider your quality of life and you can see on the propd.org rating scale um, how those numbers correlate, you know, and people who have a score less than 500 are, are really calling their quality of life excellent, whereas you know, people who have a 2,000 are, are saying it's very poor. And so, what I've been trying to do is increase the um, the communication between patients and researchers and providers, so that that we can start to tease out, you know, maybe. Symptoms, all in all, you know, it may be that the therapy that we're giving, maybe it's vitamin C, maybe it's, you know, who who knows, you know, um, turmeric. It it may be that it doesn't do daily squat for the tremor, but it it does improve people's anxiety and depression and constipation. And so, what this scale does is allow us to start to tease out some of those those details. Um, and it's also been a very useful tool for a lot of I, I, patients. People will fill it out before they come into their clinic visits. And it's really nice to be able to look at their, their printed score sheet. And, and in a glance, I can identify their problem areas and what do we need to address and work on to get their score lower. And patients can start to strive towards goal-oriented behavior. You know, if they have a 1,000 it's really nice to say hey listen in the next 6 months let's try and get this down to an 800 what are we going to do where can we what what can we focus on for improving your overall quality of life and decreasing your parkinson's symptoms so i'm i'm excited about some of these outcome measures really expanding our capacity to do better research and disease modifying research um because i think that's really hindered efforts so far well how fascinating
0: so how do people participate once again, and how would they tell a friend about this
1: so so there are two different things here I mean so the cam care website if you if you just type in cam care parkinson's um to any search engine, it'll pop right up to the Bastier website that'll take you to to the study when you get to the Bastier website, there will be a little um a, a description of the study, and off to the right there's a box that has two links to it. The first one is your consent form. We ask you to open it up, download it, read it, and really be informed about what what we're asking of you in terms of participation. And then the second link is to the survey itself. And the, survey starts out by saying hey first thing we want to do is ask did you read the consent form and do you understand what the purpose of this study is and how to contact me if you have any questions but um and then you're ready to go you're in you've started cam care and pd well that's and then so cool. um for those and and for those who who in addition either don't want to participate in the in the prospective clinical trial or um would like to do so more often that propd.org um patient that that is n- that is not linked directly to the study. So if people just are going into their physician's office and want to be able to give their physician a summary of their their Parkinson's symptoms, they can go to propd.org and print that out, you know, take that survey and once once the score pops up at the bottom, they can print that out and bring that into their providers and and that's something that people are doing without necessarily needing to participate in the longer-term study. If you'd like to be able to ask
0: Dr. Mishley a question and you called in here to the show, simply push the number one on your phone dial and that will let me know that you'd like to be able to connect in and talk with her directly. Where can we go to learn more
1: clinically? Um, So... That's a really good question because, you know, naturopathic physicians get excellent, excellent medical, clinical training in medical nutrition. Um, Neurologists, you know, conventional docs get excellent training in neurology, but it it is rarely that you find crossbreeding between the two fields and it's happening more and more often, all the time. Um, There are a lot of as I said, there is a lot of Growing interest within the movement disorder community. Um, Institute of Functional Medicine has run a couple neurology conferences, and so I would say that any any provider, MD, ND, nurse practitioner, DO who attended any of those conferences and has done some continued education specific to nutrition and neurology is somebody I would trust and go to. Um, the World Parkinson Congress is coming up in September in Portland, Oregon, and I am thrilled to see the lineup um that they're putting together. There is going to be a very very strong presence of nutri- nutrition presence at that conference. Um it's it is more than I could have ever hoped to see in at this quickly. Um they have really taken the they've heard people's desire to learn more, hear more and providers' desire to learn more. And so I don't know if your listeners all know this, but the World Parkinson Congress is one of the very few conferences that is open to both mark- uh, providers and patients. And so there are usually 3 plus 3000 plus people that go to this conference and it's really neat to have providers and patients sitting next to each other listening to the same cutting-edge lectures and learning together and asking questions side-by-side. Side. And so the September 2016 conference in Portland um, is going to have a, a whole day devoted to nutrition before the conference, and there, there are an impressive number of diet and nutrition-related lectures throughout the entire conference. So I think things are really going to be um, changing a lot in the next couple of years as as more and more people Dive in and have access to this information.
0: who are the clinicians trained in nutritional neural protection right <laughs>
1: um, like i mean there is there is no there is no official field um you know i have i i first found my my a group of people with similar interests at the orthomolecular medicine conferences. There's a orthomolecular medicine conference that um, goes between Toronto and Vancouver every year. This year it's in April. Um, up in Vancouver, Washington, it's it's the International Orthomolecular Medicine Conference. And so, you know, that's that always has a great turnout, a very international turnout. A lot of Canadian, European, U.S. providers who are all interested in better understanding Nutrition and brain health, and so I'll pre- be presenting there on on a lot of this research, nutritional neuroprotection, and in particular, I'll be unveiling some of the results of the Positive Deviance study there this year. So that'll be in Vancouver. But the Orthomolecular Medicine crew, the Functional in, the Institute of Functional Medicine, um, ACAM is train, has done some neurology lectures, um, and then any of the naturopathic medical schools. I, I trust. To do a really good job with nutritional medicine and drug-nutrient interactions, um, I, would, I would look to find somebody who who has additional training in neurology. I mean, we're all, we all walk away with a general amount of neurology, but uh, most, most people haven't gone so far as to do you know, neurology residencies. And so um, that, that really requires a motivated clinician who got training above and beyond their degree. On both ends, in conventional docs, you know, for they, they don't learn much nutrition. So for an MD to have expertise in nutritional medicine really requires a motivated MD who himself or herself went on to get themselves additional training.
0: I'm your host, Robert Rogers, the founder of Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is Dr. Lori Mishley. Dr. Mishley, some of the listeners today to our radio show would have been first or recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. What would you like to say to them right now?
1: Oh, That's I would I would ask you to go to that website, propd.org, and look at the. The heterogeneity of the disease. At the bottom of the at the bottom of that of that questionnaire, there's this the that that single picture that shows how some people progress fast and some people progress slow. Um, I I think it's really important for everybody very early in this disease or as early as they can to realize that it, it isn't just luck um, that shapes whether or not you're going to be above average or below average um that that there really uh, you ha- <laughs> that you have a lot of control over how this proceeds and i would encourage you to look at that picture and look at the people down at the bottom who aren't progressing who are these people 30 years out 25 years out who are still calling their quality of life excellent and make up your mind right now that you're going to be one of them um i i will sometimes say to my patients that you know once we hit 18, 20, maybe 30, you know the current of aging starts taking us all towards the waterfall. And that that in parkinsons once you get that parkinsons diagnosis, um what that that is is just this an awareness that the current that's pulling you is a little bit stronger than it than you thought it was or then it may be for some, your friends and that the earlier you can grasp that and start swimming against that current and start swimming upstream the easier it's going to be it is so much easier to prevent further degeneration than it is to grow new brain cells you know so reversal is a much much different task than prevention so for those of you who are newly diagnosed um, I, I would say eat a prudent diet um you know, a nutrient dense diet. That's I, I am the data that I'm accumulating. Really does look like there's something to a nutritionally dense, prudent, a nutritionally dense prudent diet. You know, what that means is lots of fish, lots of beans and nuts, um, fruits and vegetables. Um, I I was surprised. I'm about. I'm not. I'm not quite willing to tell people go out and start drinking a bunch of wine. But I I was really surprised when I saw um you know how how strong that that link was and and like i said i haven't adjusted for age it may be that rich people drink wine and poor people drink beer i mean i just don't know yet the, this is this is preliminary data and this is not anything i want uh, i want to say we we know but but this is what it's looking like and so um you know i would i would encourage people to realize that just because you put it in your mouth doesn't make it food or or nourishment um that that all throughout the day, you have a choice with uh, of what ingredients are you going to fuel yourself with. And and each meal is an opportunity to provide your body some of that nourishment. Um, when patients are first diagnosed in my office, the first thing I do is I make them watch the movie Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. Um, not because I want anybody to go on a juice fast, but because I, I think it's an incredibly inspiring and compelling movie for showing people ooh, the power of, of nutrition. I, I mean, it is absolutely amazing to see how much a body can turn itself around and heal and start functioning better after 60 days of just pure giving, giving it pure liquid nutrition. And so I don't ask my patients to give up food or go on a on a juice fast like the guy in the movie does, but I do think that after people watch that movie and they realize, you know, geez, I, I wonder how many of my own symptoms are because of what I'm what I'm am or am not putting in my body. It it serves as a good wake up call, and most people do find their fruit and veggie intake going up by a couple servings a day after watching that movie. Um, I think some of these more popular books like Brain Brain and um, some of Patrick Holford's work on diabetes uh, really do are are fairly helpful to people with Parkinson's. I think some of the concepts are very applicable. And I, I do think people should, you know, there's no reason to entirely... Become paranoid about carbohydrates, but absolutely getting processed foods out of your diet. Making sure that your hemoglobin A1C is low. You know, you should be getting blood sugar checks every year. You know, he, hemoglobin A1C, not just glucose. You know, you should be getting you know annual labs looking at homocysteine. You know, that that, that will go up as a nutritional side effect of the levodopa. So I, I think early on in the disease, deciding to to really be aggressive and take responsibility for your health care and demand, you know, some 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 education and some blood work that, that your your doctor may or may not be able to provide, but if he or she can't, you know, you're going to have to find it for yourself. You know, there are some books that have been written. You know, Monique Giroux just um, last week published a new book on on optimal health with Parkinson's disease and has a whole bunch of great stuff on alternative medicine in there nutrition and drug-nutrient interactions. I have a book from maybe 2010 now that um, is is more outdated than what she just put together. But I I think there are a lot of resources out there with people pointing you in the right direction and helping you realize that, that it's not true. You know, many people tell me that their physicians, when they're diagnosed, say, you know, sorry, this is an irreversible progressive disease, and there's nothing more that can be done. And I I just don't buy that. It's not what I've seen. I, I believe there is a ton that can be done, and a ton that you can take, and a ton that you can eat that really will make a difference in your health and well-being. And it's not all nutrition. I mean, exercise makes a huge difference in progression, not to mention depression and anxiety. So Um, I would encourage everyone to be really empowered and stubborn and bullheaded about what this disease is going to mean to them in their life and um, decide early on that they want to be a positive deviant and figure out how to begin the journey of making that happen.
0: I have had so many discussions with individuals over the last decade who basically say, I just received my diagnosis or recently received my diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, and my doctor said that it's degenerative. Can you again <laughs> clarify what your reaction is to that
1: statement? Well, you know, I just asked a patient came last week. They said, you know, I, I've been working with this person for a couple months now and and probably three months, and you know, initial initial, hey, this I'm I'm feeling better. My this symptom's better. That symptom's better. And then over the last couple months, you know what has happened is this person has realized that they they're, they they start feeling bad. And when they described their symptoms of bad, I said, you know what, cut back on this med and cut back on that med. And sure enough, they started feeling. Oh, thank you. That was it. I was just. on too much medication, you know, and a month later, same thing happened. You know, I've had three good weeks, but all of a sudden, you know, I'm falling asleep during the day. I'm getting this terrible daytime sleepiness. I'm starting to get dyskinesia when I didn't have it before. And I said, you know what, cut back on that one and cut back on that one. And so here's this person whose symptoms are improving. They feel better today than they did three months ago. And they're now on less medication than they were on three months ago. I, I cannot, I don't have the research tools to be able to tell you that I have done anything to this person's neurons. In terms of the, the word neurodegenerative is really, you know, a, a laboratory, you know, did you prove that you protected a neuron? Um, and I can't say that. But what I'm seeing does look like in some people there is a capacity To reverse this disease. This isn't a one-way course where it just keeps getting worse and worse. I see clinical examples all the time where people come in and say, I changed X, Y, and Z, and I have to tell you, I feel so much better than I did two years ago. So I I can just say from clinical experience, you know, I'm I'm not dangling a carrot. I'm not telling you I know how to cure the disease. I don't. Um, But I will say that in my 12 years of, of clinical experience, I have lots and lots and lots of examples of people who come in and say, I, I am doing better than I was a year or two ago with either no increase in meds or even a revert decrease in meds. And that's fun. That's neat to see. And that makes me really convinced that this need not be a degenerative one-way disease. I mean, as long as there are people who are reversing it, I, I call this potentially reversible.
0: I see on the control panel there are just a large number of people who've called in and are listening either through Skype or with their phones. Mm -hmm. This is your last chance. If you'd like to be able to connect and ask Dr. Michele a question, signal to me here that you'd like to be able to uh, connect with her by pushing one on your phone, and we'll be happy to connect you to her. I want to put a personal plug-in to uh, you who are listening to be sure... And acquire Dr. Micheli's book, Natural Therapies for Parkinson's Disease. I have heard rave review after rave review of how helpful the content of that book actually is. There's a link to her book on the radio show page, uh, so you just click on that and you'll be able to get you'll be able to see a further description of exactly what is in that particular book. So I'd like to be able to connect over here and um, connect in with area code 425. Hello, can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? Area code 425. Hello, we're trying to connect in here to a caller that would like to be able to ask a question. And you have area code 425. How can we help? Well, it sounds like we can't quite connect to that person. So we will simply say, sorry, we couldn't connect in. So, Dr. Mishley, you've talked about so many exciting discoveries, revolutions, that you are really starting here with regard to discovering what it is that causes Parkinson's and what we can do about it. What is the one thing you would like listeners to remember about what we have discussed today?
2: Hello, are you there? Doctor Mishly? Yeah. I'm not Dr.
0: Mishley. Oh, oh, sorry, and you didn't have a question?
2: I do have a question.
0: Great. I think we might have just uh missed her fall off here on the radio show page. Um yeah. so she might have to call back in. Uh, we just have a little technical challenge here. Okay. Um uh, Dr. Mishley, are you there? Hello, Dr. Mishley, are you there?
1: Yes, yeah, I am here. I can hear you. Oh, good. Okay, so we have a question
0: for you. Go ahead and shoot.
2: Hi. Thank you for um doing this. This is really nice. I really appreciate hearing from you. My pleasure. Um I have a question about Mucuna uh, puriens I'm not sure how you yep. say it. Yep. Um, if you take it with levodopa, is that a problem with um, with cinnamon?
1: Well, no. Um, it, it it depends. I mean, you need you need a careful prescriber. Um, and so, what it is is for those of you who don't know, macuna is a herb that contains naturally occurring L-dopa. And it is where the very earliest attempts at replacing dopamine in people with Parkinson's came from. As soon as we learned that that people with Parkinson's had a dopamine deficiency, um, what what they did was turned to to plants like Makuna that that had L-dopa. And so, so um, for people, sometimes people who are looking for a little dopamine relief, a little relief for their motor symptoms, who are hesitant for whatever reason to start Sinemet, the combined levodopa and carbidopa, many people like to experiment with MACUNA. So um, the disadvantage there is that carbidopa really does help the levodopa get to the brain. So when you take the MACUNA um, what happens is you may get a little bit of symptomatic effect, um, some people do, but it's certainly not as potent as what you get from Sinemet. Um, the neat thing about combining them, which I, I was actually taught to me by a local movement disorder doc and I think is very, very clever, is that when you take a Cinemet pill in the morning that combined carbidopa-levodopa, mm-hmm. the carbidopa sticks around a lot longer than the levodopa. So the levodopa comes and goes over the course of a couple hours, but the carbidopa actually has a longer half-life, we call it. And mm-hmm. so what happens is some, some clever docs have started telling people, you know, start with a cinnamon in the morning, but two or three four hours later, when it's time to take your next pill, instead of another cinnamon, just mm-hmm. take the macuna. That way you get the levodopa, and then you, you can ride the, the carbidopa dose from earlier in the day. And so makes, I have a lot of, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I, it was not my idea. I didn't think of it. But I think for, for people who are trying to limit their cinnamet their or the carbidopa doesn't cause some side effects, um, you know, I think that's that's a very neat way to combine them where you alternate them and, and just kind of use the morning carbidopa to boost your Macuna dose. So that's how I've seen them prescribed um and used together most commonly. Uh huh. And does the mucuna also cause um dyskinesia? You would have to take a lot. Um, I'm less concerned about it causing dyskinesia and more concerned about it causing nausea. Um, I actually personally think the dyskinesia is very easy to prevent and treat. Um, I, I do not see much dyskinesia, and even when people new patients come in with dyskinesia, I, I find that fish oil, citicoline, um, working with their meds and modifying their meds, um, it, it's pretty easy over a couple months to to improve somebody's. Dyskinesia, so I I rarely let a fear of dyskinesia influence my prescribing, mm-hmm. um, but no, it's it's not. Uh, it's more likely to cause nausea. I think um, a, a really neat story that most many people don't know is that the word cinnamon means without vomit. And it's because when you take a whole bunch of dopamine, L-DOPA by itself, you get nauseous, you get really sick. And so once we started adding carbidopa to it, what started happening is we could lower the dose of levodopa substantially and, and still treat people's symptoms without making them nauseous. So the word cinnamate means without vomit. Mm-hmm. So because the macuna doesn't have carbidopa, you are more likely to have that nausea side effect.
2: Fascinating. So, um, if you, if you take B vitamins, does that you should take them at a different time than the Mucuna and the Levodopa? Or how does that work?
1: Um, no, I wouldn't. I nope. I I. I wouldn't worry about that. I mean, I, I would get your meds straight. If you take your levodopa, find the the most important thing about timing of meds is, is to take your levodopa away from high-protein-containing meals. I would make that your priority. Um, B vitamins can ha- have a side effect of nausea themselves. As long as you take them with food, most people are fine. So it works out that most people take their vitamins with food and their levodopa away from food. Um, Makuna, again, it, it doesn't. It, I would treat it more like the cinnamon or levodopa. Um, I would take that away from food. Okay. Great. Thank you. Yep. You're
2: welcome.
0: Dr. Bishley, uh as we think back and reflect back on all that you have discussed here during this radio show, What is it that you'd most like for listeners to remember when they tell somebody else about hearing this program?
1: Um, I'd like anyone, if you know anybody with Parkinson's disease or any form of Parkinsonism, this CAM Care study that we're we're looking for participants for. Um, we we are looking for people who also have Parkinsonism and and multiple system atrophy and progressive supranuclear palsy. I mean, we want we want Parkinson's related disorders too. And so the more the more of you who can participate, or friends who can participate, people you know, if you have support groups or a friend in another state, just send them that email link. Um, and and really for the sole reason that that the more people who participate, the more of an accurate response we can give you. And we are really a year away from being able to say this is the recipe for success. I mean, we we can't explain it. We can't tell you why it works. But you know, I, I I try and always remember, you know, three million people died of scurvy. I mean, we scurvy plagued the world for a really long time before we figured it out, and and we treated scurvy with limes for 200 years before the vitamin C molecule was discovered. You know, we can't sit around waiting for us to understand it before we move things forward for patients. You know, I think there's a time and a place where we say, you know, let's let the let the patients tell us what's working. It doesn't matter if I the scientist understand it or not. If patients tell me that drinking wine and eating vegetables is associated with a slower disease, then let's just start there. Let's start to design studies that say, hey, what if we have people change their diet? Can we slow the course of disease? And we are so close. I mean, we are this is the first time in 200 years that somebody has asked the question, what are people with park who aren't progressing doing differently than those who are and we are so close we are less than a year away from being able to answer that question it just depends on people with parkinsons from around the world joining in the fight and participating And I personally send out a plea to each and every
0: one of you who are listening to this radio show today, please take the time to participate in this groundbreaking study. This really will reveal some of the secrets that we've been hoping to discover now for centuries. So participate, and let me also suggest if you are a member of a support group, Why not simply say, look, at the next support group meeting, not only will you suggest people participate, but at the meeting, everybody can just do it right then. In other words, that can be your activity at the support group. Each person can log in and answer the questionnaire. Tell your friends. Spread the word. This is something that you can do not only to help others across the globe, but this is something you can do to help yourself. So the link to connect to the study is on the radio show page and doctor Mishley, once more could you please very slowly give that link to listeners.
1: Sure. WWW dot CAM C A M Care C A R E P D dot Bastier B A S T Y R dot edu, www.camcarepd.bastier.edu, and if you go to any search engine and just type CamCare Parkinsons, the Bastier homepage will pop right up.
0: Dr. Mishley, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for all of the incredible groundbreaking work that you are doing for people who currently experience Parkinson's symptoms. You are changing the world. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: It's my pleasure. I hope to be back again.
0: Well, we would be honored to have you as a guest any time of the week, month, or year. Thanks so much for being well, with us today.
1: Well, thanks for all you do as well. Thank you.
0: And that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound where all the women are smart, all the children are loved, and all the men are, of course, handsome. And thank you for connecting into the show today. It means that, indeed, you are on the road to recovery. Next uh, week, we will be having an incredible guest who will be talking about mindfulness, the person uh, who actually founded the Duke Parapsychology Program. So get ready for a spectacular interview with a person who knows really what it means to be able to be mindful moment to moment. Thanks for connecting. We look forward to connecting with you again on the next show next week. Good day.